Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. This month, in the light of the global pandemic of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, we're talking about how the historic present moment relates to the history of climate change. So we're living in this time of historic climate change, which we already kind of knew. And now we're also living in a time of a historic global pandemic. And something I've been thinking a lot about is if we can put ourselves in the shoes of climate historians 200 years from now using whatever textual sources, non-textual sources um, are available to them, what story will those sources tell about what's happening right now? Mm. Um, We talk a lot about climate historians drawing false or um, kind of stretching causal links between climate change and various episodes in human history. Um, Could that happen? Are these historians going to see things, correlations that we can't see right now? What do you think? So the earth is on fire. It's a molten ball of lava, right? That's what we've reduced it to. Climate historians are based on the moon and Mars traveling back down to earth and sifting through whatever wreckage is left. (laughs) We've established that reality. Yep. Okay. That's, yeah, that sounds, that sounds plausible. Um, so, uh, you know, the first issue is, I, th- I, I guess, that um, the way that we record information now is, is radically different from the way that information has been recorded pretty much for centuries, right? And potentially much less permanent than the way that uh, sources have been preserved. Um, so, for example, all of the stuff that we see on social media, is, is that still going to be around, right? Um, there are efforts now to preserve what can be preserved. I think there's a Library of Congress project that's archiving all of Twitter. Yeah. Um, but I, I do wonder how much of this time is going to still be accessible to future historians. I'm not sure. Um, so right off the bat, I think there's going to be a massive, there could be a massive source bias there. Um, hmm. And of course, if you're thinking 200 years into the future, perhaps even more fundamental question where we should start is what is humanity at that point, right? Because I don't know if anyone can predict that. (laughs) (laughs) Big questions. Yeah, big, big questions. I'm not sure if history sheds that much light on that particular question, but Mm -hmm. what do you think? I I would imagine that that some of the media narratives at least do not give uh, necessarily an accurate portrayal of what's happening on the ground it really depends what the body of sources looks like. But that's, I think, where thinking about climate history actually offers an interesting insight in that as historians now start to collaborate more with um, scholars in the natural sciences, um, our understanding of past climate and its influence on human society is totally revolutionized. So I wonder if uncertainties will be clarified only after these future historians are able to use a body of sources that we don't even have access to now. I mean, there's so much that we don't know about the pathogen, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, uh, About the disease. I don't even think we've got a clear handle on the mortality rate right now. We certainly don't know how many cases there are 
right? Uh, absolutely no idea. In the United States, there could be 10 times as many cases easily. You know, one Johns Hopkins um, University epidemiologist estimated there could be as many, I believe, as 50 times more cases than the current official number. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was a publication in Science a few days ago that suggested there were five times as many cases in China as the official number. Right, we have no idea what's going on across most of the world. How many cases are there in Russia? No idea. As far as I know, a lot of cases are being classified there as pneumonia <laughs> rather than COVID for propagandist uh, purposes. Um, no idea what's going on in much of the global south. So there's this enormous fog of war that we have right now, right? We have no idea what's really happening, basically. And you can say, well, you know, we're starting to gain enough knowledge to know, for example, with a great degree of certainty that there's a selective vulnerability in different demographics, right? And, you know, we've got enough data from Italy now and South Korea to, to know that old people with pre-existing conditions are much more vulnerable to this. Okay. Um, but how, what the disease is actually like, how dangerous it actually is, we don't know that very well yet. So even on that most fundamental level, right? And I certainly don't think we can anticipate what the long-term repercussions will be socially and economically and politically of social distancing, right? Um, you know, there's people um, who will argue, including actually uh, our, um, our colleague John McNeil in the Department of History who argue it's comparing this to climate change, for example, is, is apples and oranges. These are completely, totally different things, right? This is about a global response to an acute danger. Climate change is more of a sort of chronic disease almost, uh, not to sort of jumble things too much. Um, but I do think that um, it's really difficult to anticipate how this kind of abrupt social change will affect us and perhaps unlock a new capacity for action around even bigger issues. Right? I, those histories, will <laughs> obviously they need to be written. And I hope that historians 200 years from now will be in a position to do that. <laughs> yeah, totally. But they need to be interdisciplinary right? or right. multidisciplinary. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this this morning when I was washing my hands for like the 12th time. Um, how long is it going to take, even in terms of just months or years, for me personally to understand the impact of what's happening right now on myself, uh, my family, um, the Georgetown Department of History. You talk about us being in the fog of war right now. I think that's a really apt way to think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's also interesting to think of the kinds of correlations that future historians might try and, and draw between this, for example, and other big changes, the, the big changes that we associate with the Anthropocene, for example, right? Um, or with climate change, which is you know, obviously a part of the Anthropocene. And you've probably seen already um, popular articles that have sprung up about um, the Anthropocene and COVID-19, how this is an expression of the Anthropocene because as we continue to encroach um, in formerly wild spaces um, and uh, as different communities around the world uh, continue to rely on these wet markets, Right, um, there's going to be more and more opportunities for um, viruses, bacteria to pass from animals to people. Right, um, and so you have kind of these breeding grounds for these kinds of epi uh, epidemics, and in this case, pandemics. Um, 
And so perhaps as the Anthropocene continues to gather pace, perhaps we will see more and more of these kinds of pandemics. And this is just a harbinger for what's to come. Um, you know, how do you feel about those kinds of connections? I mean, I think there is something to be said for the argument that if, if we want to think about the Anthropocene as a sort of new normal that is created in, in many ways by human actions and is reflected in um, the geological record, that pandemics like this uh, could be part of that new normal, I think is an interesting idea and one that I hadn't really thought about before. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that necessarily helps me in my own research about past climate um, but I think it is perhaps a productive way to think more holistically about human impacts on the natural world. So my problem with some of that kind of thinking is that um, as soon as you make that argument, of course, you place the blame for a pandemic like this in those wet markets, right, which, is, which are often in the developing world. Um, and of course, the problem then is the kind of encroachment that people in these areas are, are, are making into previously pristine environments, right? Um, and it has nothing to do in these arguments with, for example, the need for a global monitoring program, right? Um, uh, or with the, with the fact that different governments have sort of um, unraveled the kind of international cooperation that we need to confront these sorts of pandemics or that our government in the United States has critically weakened um, the ability of the federal government to respond and to monitor um, um, outbreaks. So, you know, uh, the agency is placed in the most vulnerable, I suppose, rather than in uh, the wealthy countries and institutions and governments that, that should have done a lot better. Um, Frankly, I don't think we would have had an outbreak like this three years ago in the United States anyway. Um, so, I mean, that's awful to think about, of course. <laughs> um, so that's my problem with some of that kind of thinking. I don't think that these pandemics are inevitable, even in the era of the Anthropocene. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that in itself kind of mirrors a lot of conversations about disproportionate impacts of contemporary anthropogenic warming on um, populations or regions that aren't that are disproportionately not responsible for mm -hmm. rising greenhouse gases mm -hmm. um that's a good point so i mean questions also does does any of this stuff change our our perspectives as climate historians and really as environmental historians right do we see the the past now and, and sort of a different light. So I'm currently taking a course with Tim Newfield in the history and biology departments at Georgetown on the history of the plague, Yersinia pestis. And this week I was reading a lot about the third plague pandemic, so the third major outbreak of plague globally, which started in 1894 and lasted well into the 20th century. And some people would say it's still going on today. Um, and 
I had such a different experience reading about a 20th century plague pandemic in, in isolation in my own apartment than I did two months ago reading about an outbreak of plague centuries ago. Yeah. And I think that this experience right now is making me a more empathetic historian, a more empathetic histor historian of the environment, of climate change. And it's a valuable lesson to think about how people experienced the past mm -hmm. and how experiencing something similar in the present changes my perspective on the research that I want to do. I also feel that. Um, and I do think there's a tendency among historians, perhaps especially historians of disease, maybe I'm wrong about this, but um, I wouldn't say to trivialize the suffering of the past, but perhaps not to take it as seriously as it should be taken. And perhaps even to forget, uh, including in discussions about the modern Anthropocene and how we should make sense of that, but to forget just how horrific <laughs> the past was for many people, right? And, and especially in these repeated outbreaks of, um, of epidemics, um, you know, that often targeted children as well. Like as a, you know, as, as you know, I'm a father of two young kids. And even if there was a 1% mortality rate among young children right now in this epidemic, I would be going insane, right? Obviously, I don't think every parent feels the same way. And I can't imagine what it would be like to experience the Black Death or any of these other experience smallpox, right? It's the sheer amount of fear and suffering and how that alters your, uh, even the, for your own mental well-being, that alters your relationship to other people, how you think about other people, how you think about life, all of that kind of stuff is now hits much harder for me than it did before. And it also makes me think about some of the problems with my scholarship, frankly. Um, when I think about um, my first book, The Frigid Golden Age, for example, I, I purposefully did not deal with disease in that book because I found the links between climate change and disease at the time I at least started the project, which is back in 2008, I think. Um, I found that those links were unconvincing and um, there was a lot of speculation involved. So I, I didn't want to get too far into that speculation. I wanted to stick to what I thought was more persuasive. But um, that means that I don't talk about um, a plague outbreak, for example, in Amsterdam in the 1660s that killed tens of thousands of people. I don't even mention it. It's as though it doesn't exist. Um, or a plague outbreak in London that killed like 100,000 people. I mentioned the Great Fire of London, but not this plague outbreak, mm. as though that didn't matter profoundly to people at the time. Um, so I would write the book differently now because there's more awareness of those connections between climate change and disease in the past, but also because it's now so incredibly more viscerally obvious that that matters. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's part of it, but... One more thing I guess that I would add is, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I've been thinking a lot about nonlinearities when we think about the past and when we start to imagine the future. 
how history can take the shape not of sort of gradual trends but almost of sort of state changes where abruptly something just changes right mm -hmm. and it's only after that kind of you might call it in, in history of science kind of a paradigm shift right that we that all of those trend lines that we're leading to have become obvious and so we mentioned earlier about the connection of this to sort of climate change and, and maybe even climate policy I, I wonder if this is not the beginning of another sort of state change where different things like Adam Tooze wrote something recently about how the primacy of economics has now been kind of revealed to be a lie. When, when those kinds of things suddenly become sharply obvious to a lot of people. Um, and we can imagine profoundly different ways of living. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but it, this does get me to think more about nonlinearity. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. I just, I find it so ironic that for decades now, people have been talking about the climate crisis and the great perils that we face given the state of the global climate right now. And yet it seems to be something like you said, much more acute that is causing that paradigm shift, hmm. which is indirectly or maybe directly influencing the amount of emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Right now. Yeah. Um, and all of those, I'm not really even sure how to make sense of all of those simultaneous factors and how they're going to change the way that the the trajectory of of human history and of human climate history specifically so yeah that that mix of factors is definitely non-linear for me right now i think with regards to falling emissions i would say well first of all the rate of emissions decline is enormous and unprecedented right um it's not just, as I understand it, about declining growth in emissions. It is an outright decline, which we haven't seen. We haven't, maybe we haven't seen it ever since industrialization. Yeah. Um, I think if you want to tie this into broader debates about climate change, first, that it does show that the representative concentration pathway 8.5 that the IPCC has um, been using um, and that's been featured in a lot of scientific scholarship and a lot of popular media as a sort of extreme uh, business as usual sometimes it's called approach right there's been a lot of debate about how well actually the falling price of um, renewables shows that RCP 8.5 probably can't happen um, but also now that the IPCC probably uh, overestimated the pace of economic growth um, partly by not taking into account these kinds of shocks that could potentially happen, right? Um, and, and so I guess from the broader perspective, we are not on track for 8.5, RCP 8.5, the apocalyptic scenario according to current emissions pathway. The climate system could still be more sensitive, <laughs> right, to even small amounts of carbon emissions. And that could still get us to RCP 8.5 level warming, but we are not, based on the emissions pathway, we, we are not following that pathway. Um, I do think, however, that there's a real danger in climate 
scientists, activists, uh, scholars in emphasizing this connection between social distancing and lower emissions to sort of make the argument that, oh, you know, we could have done it all along. <laughs> you know, these are the kinds of things that we should have been doing all along um, because social distancing is extremely traumatic for a lot of people, right? Um, I know for myself, again, with two small kids and, and a small apartment, we are talking right now, I'm, I'm sitting in my, in my closet because this is now <laughs> my office. Um, it's extremely hard, right? And um, there will be hardship associated with climate action, sure, but um, ideally, governments can step in to alleviate a lot of that kind of hardship. I think that is still possible. And climate action will come with profound opportunities as well. So for that reason, if this is what how a lot of people think climate action should look like, let's just say I don't think that's that's a way that's going to get a lot of people to take action after the pan pandemic eases. <laughs> that's my take on that. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking from a closet in your small apartment. I'm speaking from my apartment where I am completely isolated. And that's, that's another kind of trauma. That's another kind of difficulty. Um, I think, yeah, that to say that social distancing or something as extreme as social distancing is the solution or the path forward for climate action, I think to, to say that comes from a certain place of privilege where it means mm -hmm. that social distancing and the associated issues that, that come along with it aren't possibly detrimental to someone's economic well-being, mental health, what have you. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with you there. And I think it's a, an instructive moment for people who want to act on climate in whatever way to think more about how, how access works when you want to effect change and what sorts of action are accessible to what kinds of people. That's a, that's a really great point. Um, yeah, I, I do think a lot of the climate conversation, historically at least, has come from places of privilege. Um, and until quite recently, it has been kind of dominated by white male voices, I say as a white man, <laughs> <laughs> pontificating. <laughs> but, I, but, you know, I, I really think that's changing now. And um, I think more diverse voices are, are raising precisely some of the kinds of issues that you bring up. Right, yeah, because on the flip side, I think uh, conversations about vulnerable populations and the disproportionate impacts that the current global situation are having on uh, certain individuals and certain identities really opens my eyes to the ways in which discussions about any kind of action need to be much more inclusive. So I'm yeah. grateful for that opportunity in some ways to think more about how my actions, whether it pertains to climate change or um, to global health, how my actions can directly impact someone else. I think that's a really great point. And I think um, this maybe gets at how the present moment is a teachable moment as well. I think it's, it's dangerous to think of 
COVID-19 as a great teaching opportunity <laughs> for people who work on climate. Um, I think a, a, a could well turn off a lot of students, for example, or uh, parts of the general public where people are really sort of suffering acutely from this. Um, and it, it's often not a good look to sort of, sort of um, leverage one crisis to draw attention to your own pet cause, mm -hmm. however important it might be. But uh, in my classes, at least, and I'm teaching a class right now specifically on global warming, I found that um, drawing attention, attention to the very diverse and unequal experiences even of students in the face of COVID-19 is a great way to talk about climate justice um, and, and to get students thinking more deeply about um, uh, climate justice, how climate change exactly impacts the most vulnerable in the most direct ways and how any sort of effective climate policy uh, aimed at adaptation and mitigation actually will need to bear in mind those uh, social, economic, and cultural, racial inequalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, what do you think about these um, these memes and stories, articles about climate change, maybe even climate history, uh, needing COVID 19s publicist? Or what do you make of that? Man, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, and I find it a little bit troubling um partially because of what we were talking about earlier um how it's just really difficult and perhaps a little bit too much of a blunt instrument to compare two crises and draw those false equivalencies but at the same time i think it perhaps provides a unique perspective on how people change their actions and why. Mm. Um, mm. Which, so I don't think that necessarily we need to, to get everyone to think about climate change in the same terms that we're currently thinking about COVID-19, but I think it's instructive to think about why change is happening right now, at especially at um, a government level and at a level of international cooperation, um, and how similar methods could be applied to to further better climate policy, for instance. What are some of the those kinds of lessons then? <laughs> Or, or, or rather, what are those lessons for communication? One of the main lessons for communication for me is actually more compassion and more humanity in the way that we talk about crises and how they impact people. Mm. I think a lot of climate change rhetoric is, you know, we've talked about the rhetoric of doom and um, kind of these worst case scenarios and how those actually can have a really detrimental effect on mental health and on people's willingness to participate in, in any sort of action, whether that's changing their own behavior or arguing for, for stronger policy. And we have seen a lot of those kinds of narratives with COVID-19 as well, right? Um, our, our colleague, Tim Newfield, he is a skeptic of the New York Times and their coverage of uh, COVID-19 in particular because they do 
uh, hype these kinds of worst case scenarios and even give, uh, I guess, readers the impression that fatality rates, for example, are, are way, way higher than they really are. They're high enough, obviously, to be terrible. But, um, and like, what, what would you say to people who might argue that, well, you know, these kinds of narratives are what's keeping people inside or what's getting the government to finally kind of mobilize that we, that COVID-19 in fact shows that we need those sort of doom and gloom, uh, sensational fear narratives. I think we need narratives that communicate the seriousness of the problem. And I think it's up for debate kind of if the media provide those sorts of productive narratives or not mm -hmm. and where those, where those narratives come from. But I think the narratives that are equally as important to me are the narratives that I get from my friends, from social media, from my conversations with my family that make what's happening right now a lot more personal and make me understand why, why we're in this situation, what impacts this situation is having on people's livelihoods, people's mental health. I think that that kind of narrative is what we need more of. And when we talk about when we talk about climate change, when we talk about the history of past climate and what things could look like in the future. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I think the a lot of the public discourse on climate change is still focused, um, or at least until very recently, has been focused on ecosystems and animals, especially charismatic megafauna, mm -hmm. right? Like polar bears and everything, right? Um, yeah. Melting Arctic, all that kind of stuff. But um, when we talk about people too often we kind of talk about people in the abstract, right? Well, cities will flood, for example, agriculture will be difficult, but who is actually being affected? And I think what makes this different for a lot of people is that they worry about their parents, for example, on a very visceral level. I think you and I both are kind of worried about parents, grandparents, right? Um, yeah. um, I think everybody is really. Um, and, and some people also, of course, are, are worried about themselves, including <laughs> our parents, right? So, um, so there is, I think, a more visceral sort of connection between the personal and the uh, bigger problem than we have in, in climate change. And perhaps we kind of need to build those uh, connections a little bit more effectively and more humanely when we talk about, uh, and more tangibly when we talk about climate change. And how to do that I'm not sure, but I, I do actually think that telling stories is a good way to start. And in, in that sense, I think climate history does have something to offer. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, that I think this, we've ended up really at a place where we're seeing yet again the importance of climate history, of environmental history for humanizing the past and therefore humanizing the present um, so people can better understand the future. Mm -hmm. That might be a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> so we normally thank our guests, but in this case, it's just Emma and me. But uh, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in to a podcast on climate change, climate history in the midst of this terrible pandemic. Please uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and practice social distancing as much as you can. See you next time. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>